I'd ask you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Remain standing while we read God's Word together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, slide your finger down to verse 16. We'll consider only the first part, really, of this verse uh, for the message. It dovetails beautifully, I believe, with uh, the story according to John. If you want to put your finger right there in 1 Timothy, we're going to go right from there to John chapter 12 and verse 12. John chapter 12 and verse 12, we're going to read one of the, uh, the four gospel accounts of the uh, triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ since today is the day, uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry that we celebrate the, the coming of the Lord into uh, His holy city. We call it Holy Week, and uh, so we are going to make some remarks about that as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And then John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 18. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we thank you and praise you that today we can worship I pray that as always, as I stand here and we have the the Word before us, we have the Spirit for those of us who know Him in us, and indeed the Spirit is within us as a body of believers called Heritage Baptist Church. I'm grateful for that because we need to hear what you have to say through these verses of Scripture. We know that you will apply these very specifically to each one who is gathered together in this room. And I pray even as we will be reminded as we walk through this study of the triumphal entry, that we will not be as those who heard, but they really didn't pay attention. And Jesus wept and He said, you've missed the day of your visitation. Oh God, how I cry out to you that we will not miss today. You are visiting us today through your word and by the power of your spirit. And I pray that we would take in 
everything we need to that would lead us first to salvation and then beyond that to a growing sanctification, becoming more and more transformed into the image of Christ. And so we thank you for this time and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is uh, really twofold as we read out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We come to the end of Paul's instructions for Timothy in chapters 1 through 3. And I saw this beautifully dovetailing, as I said earlier, with the beginning of Holy Week. It's the culmination of all that Paul has said to young Timothy. It's the culmination of all that Paul has said to the church at Ephesus, and by extension, as we've said over and over again, he says it to us, church, Heritage Baptist Church. And so it's not only a culmination, but it is a turning point. I'm going to use this word. We'll come back to this word at the end. It is a crux. It is a hinge. It is a decisive or an important point at issue. And thus, Holy Week is that kind of thing for a Christian. It truly is the crux of the Christian life. The heart of the Christian life is the summation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that which is found in this early, one of the earliest confessions of faith or a hymn however you want to say that. Now, we're going to, this is the plan, to, to deal with the first phrase today. Great, by common confession, is the mystery of godliness. And then next week, the Lord willing, uh, on the Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we're going to walk through this and find what it has to say for us there. It's the heart of the, it's the, heart of the matter. We, we say this over and over and over again. And by the way, I will never get tired of saying it. The crux of the matter is the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel, the good news. Christ came, He lived, He died on Calvary's cross for sinners like us. He was buried, He was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. And then He ascended into heaven. And we'll mention this later as well. He is coming again. That's why Passion Week, I, I hope you get a feel for this, that every day of Passion Week you realize that this truly is the crux of the matter. I'm reminded of that old, old story. I don't know if it's true or not. Could be Vince Lombardi, Green Bay Packers, and they had had a, a really bad game. They were, they were off their game, and so he got them in the locker room, and as only a coach like him could do, he took a football and he held it out. Now, now these are people that have been playing football since Pee Wee League football. They know a thing or two. But he held out the football. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. Are there any questions? He was getting to the crux of the matter for them so that they would know what they were supposed to do. We have that in this part of one verse that we read just a few moments ago. Great indeed is our confession. We confess this. Great is our confession, the mystery of 
godliness. So let's look. You've got an outline there in front of you. It's going to help you walk through this. I'll have scriptures that I want to, to, to put up on the, on the PowerPoint, the screen, and, and it's going to help walk you through. Many of you take notes on this and write down the, the important points and then support that with Scripture. That's what we're going to do. So, first point is this, and then we have some sub-points. There was a mystery of godliness, and we've got to define this accurately, that existed many years before Christ came. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. So there was a mystery for many, many years, all the way through the Old Testament. For thousands of years, the people of God lived with a mystery. They had God. They, they had the law. They had the covenants. They had certain things that pointed forward. And these things, we, we look back because we live in the New Testament. We read books like the book of Hebrews and we find certain things that all of these things in the Old Testament were shadows. There were, they were types. They were, let me give you a big word if I can pronounce it, that we learned in seminary, anthropomorphisms. But they all had one goal. They pointed to a time when something Rather, someone would be revealed. And so when Paul talks about a mystery, let me clear up something that, oh my, it's, it's been around for a few years. We're not talking about a mystery like in a book or a movie, a whodunit kind of thing. Now, I, I, I tried to think of some, some modern-day series of, of those kinds of books. All I could come up with and this is old. Is Nancy Drew still around? The Nancy Drew Mysteries. And, and uh, there were mysteries. Nobody knew who had done it. And, and she would be the one to find out. We're not talking about a mystery as commonly defined. Mysticism is one of those words. Something unknowable. Now, the reason I say that I think most of you, you're, you're a very biblically literate bunch. But over the last 20, I don't know, 30 years, there have been preachers who have come along. Supposedly Bible preachers. And they will talk about, using verses like this, they will talk about the fact that God is a mystery that he can't be known. And somehow, that is supposed to lead you to great worship and awe. And, and they will use a verse like this, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable and inscrutable are his ways for who is known the mind of the Lord. They would say the answer to that is no one unless you buy their book or you go to their seminar or something like that, that God is unknowable. And so it leads to amazement. It leads to worship. And do you know what? They're wrong. 
the answer to that is, who has known the mind of the Lord? Could I ask you to answer that? We have. Because the mystery, that which was shadowed, that which was in types and symbols in the Old Testament, we just got these little bits and pieces, how has now been fully manifested to us through Jesus Christ. Now let me let you in on something. God is not most glorified when we know nothing about Him. And that's one of the great fallacies of teachers like that. You don't really have to read your Bible. You know, it's kind of like a trampoline with some springs missing. Now you'll know who I'm talking about there if you've done any reading at all. So you really don't have to have it to still jump and have fun. Pulling away from the authority of the Word of God. We need the richness of the Word of God and the Spirit of God guiding us into the truth. It does not help when I know nothing about God in my worship about God. Does that make sense? The thing that really helps me is when I get to know God better and better every Sunday. That's why I come to church. I don't come to church because I'm the preacher and I'm paid to. One of these days when I, way in the future, when, when I step out of this particular position, I still come to church. I'll be a part of ABF. I'll have input even if I'm not teaching. I hope I can still muddle through some stuff because I come here to know more about God. Why? Why? To be a better Baptist? No. The better I know Him, the more I'm in amazement. The more I'm exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more I am in awe of who He is. Now let me give you an illustration that explains that. Back in about 1972, I'm driving along, I remember the intersection, Maple Street and Garland Avenue. I'm driving my red Volkswagen, yes, I had a red Volkswagen, and I look across at the stoplight and I see a little black 71 Ford Pinto with this girl sitting there, it, it was a stoplight, so I had enough time to look over there. Now, of course, I was a spiritual young man, so I limited my view, but I noticed that the girl driving that little black 71 Ford Pinto was a really cute girl. Oh, Lord, help me to have spiritual thoughts. And so we drove off. I didn't think anything more about it until I went to a Bible study a little bit later on. And I was one of the presenters. And so it's a small group. And lo and behold, guess who is sitting in that group? That cute, dark-headed, long, dark-haired girl. Now, by the way, you can tell in the story that I am telling a story about my wife. It's not, not some other girl, Okay. I, I was attracted, okay? I thought she was cute. But that did not lead to my amazement and worship. It was only as we met each other 
at church. By the way, great place to meet a future spouse is at church. Let God work out the details, singles. That's the best place to meet them. And I met her, and I got to know her, and the more I got to know her and her vivacious personality and just liking to do the things that I like to do and being with her, that's when I came into a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation. And the same thing, it's the same thing with God, only better. Now, after almost 50 years, I'm still in amazement. There's still things that I'm discovering, by the way. But lo and behold, after a lifetime of studying the Word, there are still things I do not know about God, but I hunger to know, and so should you. How are you going to do that? Through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. The things once that were mysteries with my wife and with my Lord are now revealed. By the way, okay. This is, this is an important teaching. I've got three, three verses to give you. You coming to know God through Christ is not something that you're going to get solely by human reasoning. Your mind can only take in, and that goes so far. God is not someone to be discovered. He is someone to be revealed And again, that's why we come to church and we expose ourselves to the Word of God. We expose ourselves to the teaching. We expose ourselves on a weekly, daily basis in our quiet time so that we can get to know the Lord better because it is through divine revelation. Let me just show you a couple of reasons why we believe this. Paul said to me, this grace was given, look at this, to preach to the pagans to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light, here he goes with the mystery again, and to bring to light, that's why Paul was preaching the gospel, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for angels, uh, ages in God who created all things, Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Do you want to be strengthened in your life? in your walk with the Lord. He is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Here we go again. And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Isn't it amazing how when Paul mentions this and we see it just this is all over Scripture. Here's another one for you. Before we move on, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 10, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. It's imparted. It's by revelation. These things God has revealed to us. I focused on the preaching of the gospel in the first two. Here's one that says it's by the Spirit of God. Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And this gospel is the message of life in Jesus Christ. And it is openly revealed to all who will hear. Second point, under the second sub-point right here. The mystery revealed is great and is held by common confession. Now, I think this is interesting. I grew up as a Baptist, and 
we always said we're not confessional people. But we were. We had our own confession of faith. It was called the Baptist faith and confession. No, uh, message. I'm sorry. I'm, I meant to say that for effect. It was a confession. People commonly confessed these things. Not, not every detail of these, but I was struck by Paul's choice of words because he's giving. Now, many people call this, most of the commentators say this is an ancient hymn. Maybe it was sung, but I think first it was a confession of faith. One of the earliest, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Westminster, Heidelberg Catechism, you know, some of these other things. And so this was by common confession, even at the writing of Paul to, to Timothy. Church of Ephesus, there was a common confession of these realities about Jesus Christ, and we'll look deeper, more deeply, at these next week. So what is a confession? Someone said confession is good for the soul. And it is. If you've got something that's on your heart, something you need to tell somebody, confession is good for the soul. But let me just add one letter to that, and I'll put this out to you. Confessions are good for the soul. Confession is just a systematic compiling of biblical truth. And that's what you've got here in this passage of Scripture. It's boiled down. It's the essence. Not everything that Jesus did is talked about in this confession. But there is enough of the gospel from the, the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ. And I think it's even included the second coming of Christ for us to know how the gospel reveals Him. Confession just means this. It means to say the same thing. We've talked about this before. There, there are a lot of things about which we disagree, okay? I think there are some things about which we can disagree and we can still stay in fellowship. But in order to really have that deep, lasting fellowship, membership, we must agree about certain things. The solas. The Apostles' Creed, which gave us basically the, the teachings of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, all the rest of that, and a confession like this. Catechisms are a little bit different, in case that word is kind of new for you. By the way, I'm encouraged because I, it, when I use that word, I discover this is primarily among some of the younger families of younger children you are catechizing your children. What's a catechism? Basically just asks a question and gives an answer. And kids are supposed to memorize the answer. Okay? And then you move on. Now, one of my favorites is the Heidelberg Catechism. Folks, this is old. But I'm telling you, it is so up-to-date. And so we're going to do a little catechizing. Well, that's what we do every Sunday. But I want to do a little bit of more formal catechizing. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody know what it is? If you don't, you haven't read your worship guides. Okay. It doesn't say question one, but that's the first question. Normally, when we say, what's the first question of 
of, of the uh, London Confession of Faith or the Philadelphia Confession of Faith or Westminster, what is the chief end and purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the Heidelberg starts with something. Now listen to this. That is so vital. And it is the answer you have been looking for. Seriously, about whatever it is that you're going through. And it, it is just marvelous. Now, whenever you look it up, you're going to find different renditions of this. But this was to be done on the Lord's Day. It was pointed out in our ABF class every evening. The dad or the, the, the male would lead in that. If there was no male, the, the mom would, the grandmother, whatever. And they would go through this. Two questions on the, on the first Lord's Day. And here is the first question. That's not the first question. I put this in here, and I went over. I, sometimes I look at my notes, and sometimes I skip, and it catches me. But this is good, because I put it in here to say, don't be taken captive by all of the philosophies that are out there. That's why confessions and catechisms can be so important. So let's go to... Okay, I'm really lost now. Heidelberg Catechism, number one. Just look at your worship guide. It's not on there until later. Okay, we'll go back because I do want to park on that for a minute. Okay, Heidelberg Catechism. There's been a lot that's been happening this last week. After Monday, did some of you parents have maybe a thought, I, I just a little bit of fear, anxiety about sending your eight and nine-year-olds to school. Anybody? Anxiety about all the things that are happening. You know, there have been tornadoes, and that, that's following the other tornadoes, and earthquakes. There, there is so, health. There is so much around us that can lead us, believers, to be gripped with fear and anxiety and, and basically stymied in our walk with the Lord. God doesn't want that. He wants us to have a vibrant faith that really follows Jesus. And so wisely, the, the authors of the Heidelberg Confession, just look at it on your worship guide. They started with this question, what is your only comfort in life? and in death. What is it? You, you, you can have a lot of things that give you comfort in life, but when you come to the very end, the old question is, well, somebody died. Well, how much did he leave? What's the answer to that? All of it. So what is your only comfort? Would, would you say this? Because this is a common confession. Let, let's read through this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, 
all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And I'm telling you, if, if, if every believer from the youngest to the oldest, no matter what your status in life, you're single, you're married, you're a student, you're old, you're young, if they would internalize that and be a gospeled person, that's not a moral statement overlapped. That grows out of the gospel, the mystery revealed. And I pray that it's a common confession for us here at Heritage. And then I, then I look, or, or, do you still have your finger over in, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 15? Here comes Jesus. We'll get to the triumphal entry in just a minute, okay? But it's interesting, as he, as he quotes Zechariah, and this is what he's doing, he changes the wording. What does he say? This is different than in all the other gospel accounts. Zechariah is used twice. Psalm 118 is used all four times. That's kind of interesting. But here's what he says. Fear not. And, And so all week I've been wondering, oh, Lord, how can I help? Just in a small way, how can I help when there are so many needs represented by this congregation, your extended families? I can't specifically say enough for, for what you need right now, but I've said it all right here by quoting the Heidelberg Confession of Faith, question number one, fear not, fear not. So the upshot of it is, I'm not encouraged by the things I do not know about God, I am encouraged and even increasingly amazed by the things that I do know. What is the mystery revealed? It's it's the gospel message. That's the last point of that before we get to the triumphal entry. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. We, We studied that last week, but the confession or the hymn proclaims the truth of Christ who is the mystery of godliness. Now, let's go to that Colossians. Here's why you need this. Because there are forces marshaled against us by the enemy of our souls who are out to take you captive. And if you're doing what you need to do, soaking in the Word, saturated with the Holy Spirit, and growing in what the Heidelberg Confession says, you will be taking every thought captive rather than all of the thoughts around you taking you captive. He goes on through it according to all of these things that are out there. I don't care what they are, whether they're political or, or elemental spirits. and uh, Everything that is not according to Christ is seeking to capture you and make you afraid and make you anxious and make you fret. Am I wrong? You, you cannot read the news or, or listen to the news without it just, there is so much fear-mongering. 
And so don't be captive to these elemental principles of the world, but, but be taken captive by Christ. Why? I love this part. For in Him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a different, I, I memorized that out of the New American Standard. I, lo, I like the New American Standard a little bit better than this. For in Him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, listen to this, in Him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And if you can internalize that, and you can begin to grow in what is being taught about the gospel message in Jesus Christ, folks, you are going to get a handle on whatever it is in your life that is causing you fear or anxiety or frustration right now. Let's move on to the triumphal entry. Great story. We share it just about every time we have Palm Sunday. We're going to do that. I've already read it. The mystery of godliness revealed in Jesus Christ, illustrated by His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, here's one thing I find that's interesting. Up until now, in all of the Gospels, whenever Jesus heals someone or does a miracle, what has He always said? Don't, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't, tell, don't tell anybody that I'm, I'm the Messiah. Shh, it's not my time. Don't tell anybody. But here is a complete reversal. On this day when he came in through Bethany and Bethpage, came to the Mount of Olives, came through the Kidron Valley into the, which gate? Eastern gate. We studied that last Easter. He was anything but quiet. The mystery is revealed. Now, he's already here. He he came at Christmas time. That was the advent. But now, he's coming as the prophesied king. And that's why in in, in two of the four, there is the direct quote with some a, a little bit of messing around with the words, rejoice so greatly. Here's what he says. Zechariah, by the way, this is roughly 25 years, 2,500 years before Christ. That's a long time to get a prophecy correct. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Your king, righteous and having salvation, is he? Wow. What a great message. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How specific do you want to get in a prophecy? Some say there are over 300 prophecies. I've read up to as much as 524 prophecies written over thousands of years by many different authors before the coming of Christ. And how many of those prophecies did Jesus fulfill? Every one of them. Hey, that's impossible. That's that's like winning the lottery even more. You you can't do that unless you're God. So here he comes. And get this, this is is one of the things that kind of got me. He's seated, just like he said, not just on a donkey, but the foal of a donkey that has never been ridden. 
What's wrong with this picture? Anybody watch any cowboy shows? What happens when you sit on an unbroken cow or horse or donkey or a foal of a donkey? never been ridden. Now, that is also according to prophecy. And so he, well, I guess you could say it like this, and this may be just preacher talk. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, made the lame to walk. He raised dead people. He walked on water, and he calmed the storms. So why would we be surprised if he's seated on a donkey and the donkey receives him as the seated king? So rather than, shh, don't tell tell anybody. By writing in, most of these Jews knew the prophecy. He's saying, here I am. I'm here. I'm your king. I'm your Messiah that has been promised. And again, which gate did he come through? According to prophecy. By the way, there's still some unfulfilled prophecy waiting to happen. We'll get to that maybe a little bit next week. Taken up in glory. Is he coming from glory? Yep. He led me to the gate. The gate facing east. Now, Ezekiel and Zechariah were kind of contemporary. So again, this is 2,500 years before the time of Christ. Very specific prophecy. Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. He was. Right down the valley, of the, the Kidron Valley, and the crowds were coming out to meet him. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. That could refer to his, his first coming into Jerusalem. The earth shone with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing East. Uh, and by the way, some of you were here last year when we did the Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther study. Guess which gate, when Jesus comes back, he's coming through? The eastern gate. You see, he's, he's going to set, if, if Scripture says anything, he's going to set down on the Mount of Olives. He's going to come through, and you know, of course, that the whole thing was destroyed in 70 A.D., but it was rebuilt, and the Muslims who knew this prophecy in Ezekiel, they wanted to make sure that Jesus couldn't come through the gate, so what did they do? It's the only gate all around the city of Israel that is it's walled up. It's, it's, it's got concrete. Do you think that's going to stop Jesus when He comes? He's not going to be on a donkey, okay? He's going to be on a white war horse. Look at Revelation 19. There's going to be a sword coming out of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians that we've already discussed. When he comes with his angels in flaming fire, and he'll destroy, he'll pour out vengeance on his enemies, including the man of lawlessness, by the way. What a prophecy that was first started 
back when Jesus came into the eastern gate, the triumphal entry. There was another. By the way, this psalm is quoted all four times in, in the four Gospels. All four Gospels have the, the account of the triumphal entry. Psalm 118 is quoted in all four. Zechariah is only in two. So this is the one that really is, is pretty important. Both of them are. Save us, we pray. That's, that's what Hosanna means. Save. Save us. We pray, O oh Lord, we pray. Now watch this. Give us success. What kind of success? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think this prophecy that is found in all four gospel accounts plays heavily on what the people were looking for and how they missed the coming of Jesus when he came the first, first time. Now, the crowds were so stirred up, they were rejoicing with a loud voice that the religious leaders, do you remember what we said at the end of John? The Pharisees looked at one another. They were blaming each other. You see that, that you're, you're, you're not doing anything. The whole world has gone after him. That's the way it seemed to them that everybody was following him, and they were shouting, Hosanna, save us, bring us success. And that was part of the problem. And by the way, it's part of the problem today. At times, they were looking for a political, physical redeemer who would deliver them, watch this, from their political enemies. If, if some of us were transported back and we were in the crowd, you know what we would be yelling? Drain the swamp! <laughs> Get rid of those Romans. Set up your rule, Messiah, and help us to be successful. Feed us food when we need food. Heal our diseases when we need healing. And the amazing thing is that within a week, within less than a week, you know this, their cries would not be, save us! Their cries would be, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Their self-centered view, look, a self-centered view of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His deliverance will sooner or later lead you from saying, Lord, save me, to, Lord, I don't know what you're up to. Crucify him. Now, by the way, the disciples didn't cry out for his crucifixion. What did they do? They ran. And so Jesus was left alone. Broken expectations. All of the stuff this last week could make a, 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 a Christian, really a, a solid Christian at times, look around and scratch his head or her head and say, Lord, what is going on with all of the things? So John's reference to Zechariah said, fear not, we need this. You know when we need the fear not? Not when the diagnosis comes. It's after the initial diagnosis when the healing doesn't come. Or what we expected to happen hasn't happened. 
And that could, be, that could be a number of things. I look out and I see people, all of us, if you widen the circle wide enough, all of us have experienced loss. And the time that we really need the fear not is when the answer is not immediate. What is your only comfort in life and death and why is that so absolutely important? You shall go, up, be, go out in joy, be led forth in peace. I want you to see this. When the disciples were shouting and rejoicing, not in John, but in Luke's gospel, the religious leaders said to them, tell them to be quiet. What did Jesus say in response? Anybody remember? I tell you, if these don't shout, which they were created to do, the rocks, the stones will cry out. They weren't created to do that. Or were they? Were they? Well, looked at Isaiah 55, for you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, what are mountains and hills made out of? Rocks shall break forth in singing. Do you believe that? Do you believe all the trees of the field shall clap their hands? On a real windy day like the other day, did you, did you hear any clapping? You know, I, I just wonder sometimes if we miss it because we're so earthly bound that we can't look with eyes of faith and see that these things are true. Have you ever done this? This drives my wife crazy when I do it. So I don't do it with new people. I do it with the people I know. And if you're ever out to eat and you've got a, a nice glass, a, a glass glass, and you're bored or whatever, and you dip, have you guys tried this? Dip your finger into the water and you put it around and put it around and sooner or later what happens? <laughs> the glass sings. Now what's a glass made out of? Sand. Where does sand come from? So, the rocks can sing. Okay. I, don't, don't take my theology on that. I just think it's an interesting point. Okay? Let's go to this. Do not fear those who can kill the body. We talked about this in our ABF class. Guys, you're going to have fear. But don't fear the who or the what. Whether it's disease or illness or anything like that, there is a sickness that can be healed. There is a sickness for discipline. There is a sickness that leads to death. Barring a return of the Lord, we're all going to get that sickness eventually, somehow, or an accident. So don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, there's nothing more they can do. But I warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you. Fear him. Now, here's where I have the Heidelberg confession spelled out. We're not going to say it again, but I just want you to be reminded of this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Look at the richness. I am not my own. Paul said, I've been bought with a price. I belong body and soul, life and death to the one, the only one who can be faithful. When all others will abandon you, He is my faithful and your faithful Savior, if you know Him, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid by His atoning sacrifice 
for all of my sins, past, present, and future. There is now therefore no condemnation with his precious blood has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That is an ongoing work, but it is a work that you and I are familiar with if we are in Christ. I love this. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair of my head. This has got to be figurative, looking around. Because there's some of us in this room that are not worried. We don't have any hair to fall from our head. It's figurative. But the, small, the smallest, I said it in ABF, not a follicle. Not a cell can change in your life. The smallest of details. If he takes care of the smallest, let's work from smallest to greatest. Will he take care of the big stuff? That can't happen without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Christ. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, makes me And I love this. This is the works. This is sanctification growing out of justification. What I do growing out of who I am makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him, period. No matter what comes in our life. The great mystery of godliness has been revealed. It is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said at the beginning that this verse in 1 Timothy 3 is really the crux. Crux is is a word from Latin that means cross. That's the crux of the matter today. It'll be the crux of the matter tomorrow and the next day, Holy Week or not. Every week, every day. Now, growing out of this, I thought I would just give you this. Here's the end of the sermon. Here's the appeal I love that the writers of the Heidelberg Confession said this. What must you know? It's not automatic. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort that we just saw? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Unless it's revealed to us that we are great sinners and we need a great Savior, we'll never get past that point. Secondly, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And then thirdly, once I've made it past that, how I am to thank God daily for such deliverance. I don't have them often, but the other day, I was, I was driving home, and for some reason, I don't know why, I was feeling a little blue, a little down. I, I don't know. Jan was being a smart aleck. Probably because it was my birthday, and I got another year older this last week. No, it really wasn't. I, I don't know. These things, and they're going to come and go with, with no, Why? And then I started counting my blessings, thinking, Lord, how, how could I be down? And I started, I'm, and I'm trying to memorize questions number one and two. I'm on the road of the Heidelberg Confession so that I can know that joy and that comfort 
in life and in death. And I started rehearsing all that Jesus had done to forgive me, to set me on a path, to give me at this point, it could change this afternoon, to give me good enough health to stand up here and share with you from the Word of God, to enjoy a wife, to enjoy children and, and, and grandchildren. And I, I, I just almost had to slap myself and say, what in the world are you thinking? Look at all of the reasons why you have to be joyful. One thing maybe it was caused by was the same thing that Jesus experienced. And th this is how we end it. I'm going to say don't miss it because there were people that didn't miss it. Luke's gospel records these words. This is Jesus is coming into Jerusalem when he drew near and he saw the city. And, and I do sometimes. I, Does anybody want to be saved, Lord? In our world, he wept over it. This is a different word than him weeping over Lazarus' grave. Totally different. This is loud, anguished cries. That was a soft cry. Why? Why the difference? Because he knew Lazarus was going to be at least resuscitated to live, and then he would have eternal life. He was weeping over the lostness of Jerusalem, over, over people who would not get it. He said, the day... Even would you that you even you had known this day the things that make for peace, the mystery of the gospel, but now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. Forty years in the future, Titus would come with his Roman armies, destroy Jerusalem. But even more than that, there's a coming day of visitation. And it's not just those in Jerusalem who've rejected, it's people all over the world who have lived. But now to draw it back to here, how sad it would be for anyone in this place to miss this day of visitation. When the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God, you know what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We confess those sins and the mightiness of God to save, that He was buried that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. All who believe, all who repent will have eternal life. They don't have to be the ones who are sadly going to be involved in that time. Jesus comes. Guys, you missed it. You missed it. You missed the day of your visitation. Let me pray. Father, it is fitting that we end with this. A sobering note, while we've spoken of the triumph of Jesus coming into the city, there's a triumph mixed with pain, weeping even on Jesus' part, knowing that people wouldn't get it. They would refuse. They would reject the clarity of the mystery revealed. God, I, I, I cry out to you that, that there would not be people in this room who would miss this day of visitation. When the Word has been declared, the gospel has been preached, they have an opportunity to repent of their sin and believe in the risen Savior, but who will reject it and who will walk out of here unsaved.
Lord, don't let them leave in that dangerous, dangerous position. But let each person here repent. And help us to be encouraged that our one comfort in life and in death, body and soul, is that we belong to our faithful Savior, even Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that as we begin Holy Week. I pray that our thoughts would be such that we would be prepared for our Good Friday service coming up on Friday, for our time of worship of the resurrection of Christ next Sunday. We thank you for what you're doing and will do. And Lord, we thank you that you will come again someday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.